preaching today on this message, the title, Practice the Golden Rule. As best I can tell, as I've looked, I've never really devoted an entire message to the golden rule that um, many people could quote, or at least in its usual form, maybe not exactly from the King James. But it's found right here in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. And we'll read just that verse. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets, Jesus said. Let's read it one more time. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is part of Christ's classic Sermon on the Mount. We've worked through chapter 5, chapter 6, now we've come to chapter 7. Been in it for a few weeks. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals God's standard of righteousness. He directs much of what he says to the Pharisees. They were listening here. It wasn't just the disciples. And Jesus was well aware of the fact that the Pharisees were depending upon their outward piety. They were satisfied with just outward righteousness. They weren't interested in an inward heart righteousness. In another place, he indicted them, as he did quite often, and he said, you clean up the outside of the cup and platter. Oh, you look good on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of extortion. You're full of rot and corruption. Uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't compliment the Pharisees very much. And as we come to chapter 7, Jesus doesn't let up on their case. He's still, he's still piling it on. And he gives some more sky-high commands that no man can attain to, Pharisee or not, unless God gives help and grace from outside of ourselves. As Jeremiah the prophet said, maybe you've noticed this great verse, chapter 10, verse 23 of his prophecy said, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We can't do it. And so Christ commands here, even in the earlier part of this chapter, about not judging, but about discriminating and praying in faith. That continues in this same vein. He anticipates all of our excuses and our cop-outs. But aren't you glad that God never gives a command without supplying the grace to obey and keep it? His commands are His enablements. It's interesting that virtually everyone who's familiar with Christianity all, the Bible, they've heard of the golden rule, and they could probably say it, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? That's not exactly the wording here, but that's the way we think of it. Virtually everyone has heard of that. Even many who do not profess to be believers, Christians, but very few actually live it. They may think they do. You may think you do. Some people put their hope of heaven in their perceived ability 
to keep the golden rule. I've had people when I witnessed to, that's their first their response. I say, are you a Christian? Do you know the God? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Or some similar question like that. And they'll say, well, I do my best to keep the golden rule. I've had people respond that way. Spurgeon said, the golden rule is more admired than practiced by ordinary men. I think he was true. I don't think that's changed since he died. It is entirely possible for a man to keep the golden rule negatively stated. In other words, to say, don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. It's interesting that um, major religions outside Christianity like Confucianism and Buddhism, they have expressions of the golden rule But listen, they are all expressed negatively. Only Christianity states it positively. Only Christ and the Sermon on the Mount. How different it is to keep the golden rule positively. You know what it requires? A transformed life. Love has to replace hatred and indifference. And only the Holy Spirit can produce that kind of love. Only the Holy Spirit can shed abroad the love of Christ, the love of God in our hearts. But how important this is. It's placed in a position of prominence. Really, Jesus is building up to it. If this simple, logical rule were followed not only outwardly but in its spirit and intent as we'll get into today. I don't apologize for saying and it's not an oversimplification. All the social and political problems and conflicts would be solved. All of them. The issue is not money. If you just, if we haven't learned anything from our government, we certainly should by now. You just can't keep throwing money at a problem. All you'll do is corrupt some party that may have been somewhat altruistic before then. The problem is not money. The problem is not really relationships, although some commentators say that about this verse. We we can have close relationships that we exploit to our own selfish advantage. Did you know that? On a more fundamental level, it boils down to this. We must love God first and foremost, and then love those that He's created in His image. Not because it is to our advantage and we get ahead by doing that, but because God loves them. And therefore, we treat them the way we would like for God to touch them to treat us. I'm not exaggerating one iota and not just being addressing the elephant in the room with what's going on in the news when I say that if this rule were followed, if the golden rule, golden rule were followed, the powder keg of atrocities that are going on in the Middle East right now would be diffused overnight. Ancient prejudices, long-time sworn enmities would be set aside and replaced with the love of Christ for one's enemies. Jesus already talked about that, love your enemies. If we could come to the place where we have nothing to prove 
and we can trust God to avenge us in His way and in His time if we can just rest our case with the judge who's never once been found guilty of a miscarriage of justice. There wouldn't be wars, fightings, tumults of wars. So I don't know about you, but my prayer is, Lord, hasten that day. When the knowledge of the Lord and the fear of the Lord and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, it's going to happen one day. And then you know what? We shall know as we are known, and we will perfectly treat others as God treats us. Let's keep that before us. But I don't apologize for saying it should bother us that the golden rule is just admired but seldom followed, seldom implemented. It should bother us. What do we need to realize to change that? Well, I want to give you two things today, and I hope you'll remember these. Some of what I'm going to say you've probably never heard before. I'm not trying to be novel. There's nothing new under the sun. But sometimes we get so used to certain things, it, it, it does us a little bit of good to hear something that shocks us a little bit. First thing is this, practicing the golden rule is a condition for answered prayer. We can understand that from this context. The very first word that introduces the golden rule verse, what is it class? Therefore, I was waiting for somebody to say it. Therefore, you've always, always heard it said and it's true when you see the word therefore you need to see what it's there for. It means so. In fact, the ESV translated so. So, therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. So what? If you want to receive what you ask for, if you want to find what you seek, if you want the door to be opened when you knock, here's the key. You better do this. Boy, that puts a whole new light on this verse, doesn't it? That's a whole new wrinkle on it. Jesus is building to a climax here. He's not tapering off. I don't think we realize how Jesus consistently treated this matter of praying in His name, which was something entirely new, praying in His name to the Father and receiving answers as the ultimate in the Christian life. You know why we don't pray more? We don't see the possibilities of prayer. We don't see the way God sees prayer. We don't see our absolute need to pray. So we just have a nominal prayer life and we bookend the service with prayer and we say, now I lay me down to sleep and we say a little half-hearted prayer in the morning before we rush off to work or school. I know wherever we speak. I hope you'll see a different emphasis and premium on prayer today. Did you know the purpose for obedience, the purpose for service, the purpose for bearing fruit is that our prayers will be answered? I'm not exaggerating. 
We tend to think just the opposite. <laughs> we tend to think that the way to accomplish God's purposes, the way to receive what we need is to pray. And, and yes, that's part of it. I don't deny that. But to many believers, prayer is just the rabbit's foot. We rub. Prayer is just the lamp of Aladdin, that we rub it the right way and God jumps out like a genie and says three wishes. Isn't that pretty bad? Isn't that pretty unworthy of God? Is our God a utilitarian God? Is He somebody we can manipulate like that? That's not the God of the Bible. I want you to see what the Bible says about our prayer hearing God. Would you take your New Testament? You don't have to turn far. You go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. What Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples. Some amazing stuff here. They were grief stricken when he told them he was going to leave them, that one of them was going to betray him, but oh, oh, the wonderful positive stuff he gave them. Verse 12 of chapter 14 Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or into me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. We talked about that many, many times. And whatsoever ye shall ask. It's interesting, Andrew Murray in his classic book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, said that that word and should be translated that. That whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, the greater works. That will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Hey, can you think of somebody in your life, please don't nudge your spouse or next one to you. Don't do anything obvious, okay. But can you think of somebody in your life that you never hear from or they never come to see you unless they need something from you? Yeah, we're laughing because we all can think of somebody like that. I can think of people that call me that way. I never hear from them unless they need something. You know, sometimes we're just hungry for their fellowship. We don't begrudge helping them, but we would like to just talk to them, commune with them, have a little interchange. Do you think Jesus feels that way too? He is telling his disciples here about the brand new privilege that they had now just entered into. And oh, what a privilege this is of praying in His name, in praying in Jesus' name. What is the common thing we heard said when that is mentioned in a message or in a lesson? I don't know about you, but the common thing I've heard said is, oh, oh that's like uh, signing a blank check with Jesus' name on it. And again, we make God to be a utilitarian God. We make Him do what we want Him to do. A blank check with Jesus' name on it, drawn on the bank of heaven because he has unlimited credit there. Could I say something better? The name of someone stands for their nature. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. 
That speaks of one rep, one's reputation among others. Listen carefully. When we wholeheartedly desire the fame of Jesus, the nature of Jesus to spread, that the Father may be glorified in, their, in the Son, there's no limit to what Jesus will do that we ask Him for to that end. No limit. Again, Andrew Murray, great man of prayer, experienced revival, understood prayer. He said this, when the name is everything to me, it will obtain everything for me. Wow. So to get back to what I started to say a minute ago, the purpose for praying is not that we will bear fruit, though yes, it will enable us to bear more fruit. The purpose for bearing fruit is that prayer in the all-prevailing name of Jesus will be answered. I don't hear many amens. This is striking you new. I just ask you to check me out. And we will enter more fully into the oneness that Jesus prayed for in John 17. That is the ultimate. And you have your Bible perhaps still open to uh, John 14. You won't have to <clears throat> look very far. You probably don't have to turn the page to look at uh, John 15, 16, which brings out exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus said, still in the upper room discourse, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Would you underscore that next word? What is it? That ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. That's the purpose for bearing fruit, is that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. When we abide in Christ and His Word abides in us, as He says in verse 7, we will bear fruit to the end that we will ask what we will and it shall be done unto us. Jesus says it over and over, folks. This is not just an isolated case with a private interpretation put on it. 1 John 3, verse 22, you need not turn there, just listen. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Not the other way around. It's not whatsoever we pray, we'll be able to do to keep His commands. No, that's not what it says. We obey, we bear fruit, we do what He pleases. We keep the golden rule. Why? So that we can ask and receive of Him when we pray. Don't divorce it from its context. That's the goal here. This is the pattern. If we being evil, as Jesus said in the foregoing verses there in Matthew chapter 7, would experience the good things that our Father delights to give us when we pray, therefore, the first word of, chapter, of verse 12, therefore let us be sure to practice the golden rule in our dealings with others. And this is far more comprehensive than we might think. So let me say it this way, moving on to the next sub-point. Failure in getting our prayers answered invariably points to failure to implement the golden rule. Jesus said in the last clause of verse 12 there, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule is the summarization of that. It's the succinct expression of the second part of the Decalogue, the second part of the Ten Commandments. 
first part of the Ten Commandments, the first four of the Ten Commandments, deal with our relationship with God. That could be summarized by the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy what? Neighbor as thyself. That comprehends the second part of the Decalogue, the part that Jesus quoted to the rich young ruler. It's the succinct expression of it. You see, if we're not right vertically, we're not going to be right horizontally. And if we're not right horizontally, we're not going to be right vertically. Because if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Lawlessness. That relates not only to our relationship to God, but our relationship to others. We are wasting our breath when we pray. And I bet there are a lot of Christians in this room are wasting your breath when you pray. The Bible says that there are reasons God does not answer prayer. We find cop-outs, not reasons. We find excuses, not reasons. The norm, the plan, the comprehensive promise is what we talked about last week. Prayer is meant to have an answer. Everyone that asketh receiveth. Everyone that seeketh findeth. Everyone that knocketh. To him the door shall be opened. Don't weaken the force of Christ's words. Are there conditions? Yeah. And he goes right into them. James chapter 4. Would you turn there please? Another great, great passage on prayer. James chapter 4, verse 2. We'll read verse 1, even while you're getting there. From whence come wars and fightings among you? And he answers the question, come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? And then he says this, ye lust, ye desire and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, isn't that what's going on right now? Yet ye have not, because ye ask not, don't stop there. Ye ask and receive not, because it must not be the Lord's will. Is that what it says? No, no, that's not what my Bible says. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. Ye ask for the wrong motives, that ye may consume it upon your lusts, upon your pleasures. In other words, you're selfish. You're not thinking of others. You're not motivated by love, but by lust, he uses that word there. You're not implementing the golden rule, and that's why you don't get your prayers answered. So, beloved, when you pray, when I pray, and we don't get our prayers answered, yes, and we may have to persevere in prayer. I understand that. Don't let your first reaction be, well, it must not be the Lord's will. Why don't we look within and say, What's not right? What is amiss in my heart? Where am I deficient in love? Romans 13.10 addresses this. Just jot that reference down. It's probably on the screens. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That squares with what Jesus said about the golden rule, isn't it? For this is the law and the prophets. This is the epitome of the law and the prophets. Love is the fulfilling of the law. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet what he or she has. 
You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to hate them in your heart. You're not going to lust after the wife or daughter. No, you will do unto him as you would have him do unto you. If you really love them. And so we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Looking back at chapter 6. And what Jesus said about forgiveness. In association with prayer. When he gave the model prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer. He stressed only one thing after he gave that. And that was forgiveness. God will not hear our prayer when we Pray, forgive us our debts if we do not forgive one another. The same truth is brought out in Mark eleven twenty five. When you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against one another. Otherwise, your Father will not hear your, your prayer. The same thing is brought out in Matthew eighteen thirty five, where Jesus gives a parable. And then he says, so God will chasten you, just like the master chastened the servant in this parable. If we from our hearts... Not just outwardly, but from our hearts, forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Okay, in our heart, we don't want people harboring a grudge against us and not able to look at us without raising that barrier thought. No, we don't want that. So let's abide by the same rule. Folks, the prayer life is the ultimate for a number of reasons, and we'll talk about them But we get satisfied with prayers being unanswered. Secondly, to keep the golden rule, we must start with God. Now, that looks counterintuitive here. Because when you read the golden rule, it looks like you have to start with yourself. It looks like you have to ask yourself, what do I want? Okay, and then when I know what I want, then that's, or the way I want to be treated, then that's the way I need to treat others. At first glance, it looks that way. It looks like we start with ourselves, but no, we've got to start with God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, His glory. And if we sincerely do that, are we not seeking God Himself? You know, if, even if you think, well, we need to put others first, <clears throat> Well, is that really a foolproof method? No. Borrowing that same rationale, could we not flatter others just because in our fleshliness we would like for them to flatter us? I don't think God's pleased with that. We don't start with us. We don't start with others. We start with God. He alone is worthy to be praised and emulated. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself unless you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We were made by God and for God, and we can function truly only in our relationship to God. And so when we start with God, then everything else will fall in place. When we see God for who He is, then we'll see ourselves for who we are as sinners. And you're not going to hear this from secular education or psychology. No, we live in a very humanistic age. 
Man is the measure of all things, if you listen to what is being said out there. I mean, we think we're somebody. We put a man on the moon a long time ago. We conquered polio. We've transplanted hearts and lungs and kidneys. Nothing we can't do if we just set our mind to it. You hear that said at every graduation ceremony. You know, it's easy to talk that way when you're around other homo sapiens. But no man can come into the presence of God without saying with Isaiah, I am undone. I'm ruined. That's exactly what that means. We are all unclean. And all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Oh, how this realization should humble us in the dust. How can we talk about our rights? How can we talk about what we're entitled to? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Jesus died for our wrongs. We need mercy, not justice. You know, this book is inspired of God, and we can know it by by several obvious reasons. One of the reasons we can know it must be inspired of God is it wouldn't tell on man the way it does. Man wouldn't tell on himself that way. This book tells us the unvarnished truth about sinful man. It gives unanimous testimony to the sinfulness of man, Old Testament and New Testament. You know these verses. I'm not telling you anything new, but I hope you'll just be impressed with the repeated unanimous testimony. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not the one. Romans 3.10, verse 23, the same chapter. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, this is the Old Testament. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Not a single one. Romans 8, 6 through 8, we read at the beginning of the service, for to be carnally minded, fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal or fleshly mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Oh, we don't like to emphasize that. That doesn't fit with our common idea of free will. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Boy, it's getting real quiet. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, folks. This is not my thoughts. Man is a fallen sinner. And that's why he's basically selfish. Little babies come into the world with their fists clenched. They go astray from the womb speaking lies. Once Adam and Eve both partook of the forbidden fruit, they weren't thinking of God first like they'd been before. Oh no, they ran from Him. They weren't considerate of each other. They blamed each other. Do you think we're any different? What kind of nature have we inherited? 
we all have the tendency to be self-seeking and self-serving. We have the tendency to be utilitarian and scheming and calculating. Selfless love doesn't come naturally. And even when we're motivated by fear, usually it's not the fear of God whereby men depart from evil. It is egoism. We act out of self-interest. We want to protect ourselves. We want to avoid retaliation from somebody else. We're no dummies. You got to start with God first. And then you'll see yourself the way God sees you, the way you really are. And then you'll see others as we see ourselves. Once we know how vile and harmful we can be, it's a little bit easier to be patient and compassionate toward others, isn't it? We no longer see others as hateful people who are out to get us. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, to beat us in the race for money, position, or fame. We no longer feel that we're entitled, so we don't expect others to treat us in a certain way. When we see ourselves the way God sees us, we sincerely feel that we are unworthy of the least of God's mercies. Nobody owes us anything. Because if we got what we really deserved, we'd be in hell. And anything is better than that. Anything. And we'll see others in the same boat we're in. So how is that? If we see others in the same boat we're in. How do we see others? Well, we see them, first of all, just like we are, ruined by sin. I've alluded to this passage in Isaiah chapter 6, but I want you to see it for yourself. Would you turn there? Keep your finger, Matthew 7. Isaiah chapter 6, the great vision that the young prophet had. Maybe you've memorized this passage. He had a vision of the Lord of hosts, high and lifted up, his robe, his train, his entourage filled the temple. The posts of the door moved. Holy, holy, holy was what one of the seraphims cried unto another. What was the response? <laughs> Did uh, Isaiah say, oh, I just can't wait to tell people that I saw God. That's the way some people often respond. They can't wait to. Say, I had a vision of God. Here's his response. Verse 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. And I already told you that word means ruined. Totally undone. I am ruined. And next he saw others in the same light. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. They're in the same boat he was. You know, I don't think any of us understand the extent to which we've been ruined by the fall. There's not much said about the fall of man, except that God had to redeem us and rescue us, and I, that's wonderful. But we don't understand the depths of our depravity because of the fall in the garden. 
It's popular to say a whole lot about the fact that man was made in the image of God, and he was. Please don't think I'm taking away from that. But how much do you hear about that image being marred when he fell? We act like the image is still intact in sinful man. I think about how Jesus himself, the great sin bearer, is kind of an object lesson here. The Bible says that his own visage, his own appearance was marred more than any man in his form than the sons of men so that when Jesus hanged on the cross, he didn't look like a man. He was so mangled and bloody. We don't look like the man God made in the beginning. A young boy was standing on the ocean shore talking to a seasoned seaman one day. They were both looking out on the horizon. It was low tide. And you could see a shipwreck on the reef. And the little boy said to the seaman, Is that a ship? And the old man, weather beaten, all of a sudden his eyes twinkled. And he said, no, Sonny, that's what's left of her. And with twinkling eyes, he described that schooner in her glory days, being christened and then sent out on her maiden voyage, her sails unfurled and flapping in the breeze and fairly skimming across the waves. Beloved, when we look at ourselves in the mirror and when we look at others of our race, We don't see man as he left the creative hand of God. We just see what's left of him. And that should have the effect upon us of of making us merciful and long-suffering to others, even as God has been to us. We start with God, and we'll see ourselves the way he sees us. We'll see others the way he sees them ruined by sin, secondly, deceived by Satan. I hope I'm not telling you anything new when I say we are all the dupes of the God of this world. If you can find 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 quickly, you'll see what I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul describes lost man saying, in whom the God of this world, that's, that's not Jehovah. That's the devil. That's Satan. He's the God of this world. Hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Oh, how deceived men are. Oh, how prone to deception we are. Men think that they are free when they are enslaved by sin. A man's sucking on a cigarette or holding a glass of wine that he takes too much of and and he talks about how he's free. (laughs) Who's he kidding? Who's he kidding? It's interesting that in, I think it was John 8, Jesus told the Pharisees, the Jews, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, implying that they weren't free. And they bristled. 
And they retaliated and they said, we are Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. While they were speaking right there in the temple over the portico, the Roman flag was flying. Who were they kidding? That's how blind people are. That's how deceived they are about the enslavement of sins to Satan. Let's pity sinners who are blind and deceived. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate their minds. I hope I don't have to labor the point with you that if God had not helped you by His Spirit to understand the gospel, if He had not turned the light on in your mind, you'd still be as blind as a bat, groping in the darkness, ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That would be you. That would be me. When we start with God, we'll see ourselves and others the way we really are, ruined by sin, deceived by Satan. But here's the good news, candidates for God's grace. Jesus told us back in chapter 5, verse 45, one of the reasons He gave that we should be able to love our enemies, do good to them that hate us, pray for them that despitefully use us, and so forth. The reason is because our Father which is in heaven makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We call that common grace. If God can do that to people that hate Him, can't we do it to those that hate us? Can't we be kind? What would be the best thing that could happen to your enemies? I hope you agree with me. The best thing that could happen to them is they'd get saved. Do you really desire that for them? Or do we want God to make an example of them by sending them straight to hell? What if God was not long-suffering to us and fast-tracked us to the lake of fire? Of all men, we'd be miserable, most miserable. But only when we see ourselves the way God sees us, and we see others the way they really are, only then can we treat others in grace as we see them as candidates for God's grace. When we see other humans in their relationship to God, as eternity-bound men and women for whom Christ died, then, and only then, will it not be difficult to implement the golden rule. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16? We're almost done. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. We'll be able to say with Paul the Apostle, I love this verse, we comment on the verses all around it, but seldom do you hear anybody comment and expound this verse. Verse 16, wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. We know no man after the flesh because we see everyone in a spiritual way. No longer do we see others as competitors out there in the business world, as people that are doing road rage and making life miserable for us. 
No longer do we see them as just potential votes or commodities. We see them the way God sees them, in a spiritual way. After starting with God and seeing ourselves as vile, unworthy sinners, we will see others as potential trophies of God's grace. And then we'll be able to implement this stupendous summary of the law and the prophets that Jesus puts on the end of this verse 12 of chapter 7. Whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's it. That sums it all up. The love of Christ will grip our hearts and cause us to work no ill toward our neighbor. But agape love, the love of God, goes far beyond just merely refraining from harming our neighbor. Confucius and Buddha would agree with that. What if uh, you went home to your wife or husband today and and they asked you, do you love me? And you responded by saying, well, I haven't done you any harm, have I? Would you be really reassured by that? Would you be all that touched by that? I think you get the point. We need a life transformed by the grace of God and the regenerated work of the Holy Spirit to make positive, Christ-like love act in that way, fulfilling not just the letter, but the spirit of the golden rule. And all God's people said, let's pray. Oh God, we confess, and I mean we, I have to along with all of us, We don't have the ability in ourselves to put into practice this lofty requirement, the golden rule. It is high. We cannot attain unto it. And yet, dear Lord, you commanded it. And are not your commands your enablements? O Father, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, Let this kind of love be shed abroad in our hearts. The world doesn't see much of it. But help us to have it. Help us to implement it that we may attain to a life of prayer that lays hold of thy power and thy presence and thy holiness. The more we know you and the more we see your glory, as Paul told the Corinthians, the more we will become like you going from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. Lord, help us to be convicted, but then help us to avail ourselves of the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, the transforming grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.